Welcome to Ministers Talking Sh**, a weekly program where Rev Briz and Rev Z and their guests chat about current affairs, world events, spiritual principles, and any old sh** they want to talk about. Based on the new thought philosophy and ancient wisdoms, Ministers Talking Sh** shares a visionary perspective of the evolving spiral called spiritual living. Join us each week as we explore the emerging paradigm of life on planet Earth and beyond. And hello again, dear ones, Reverend Robert with you over here. Reverend David Alexander from Atlanta, Georgia over here. And we're a couple of ministers talking shit today. This happens every Friday on New Thought Media Network, 7 a.m. Thank you for being up early. Uh, or if you're on the East Coast, not quite so early. And uh, thank you for being with us. Dr. David's been a guest on the program a few times. Rev Z is off doing a little biz bit of business and family travel again this weekend. He got real busy with travel this December. So we're having a, a great series of special guests. And this week, it's Reverend Dr. David. Welcome back. Thank you. It's so great to be back. Really, really great. And uh, looking forward to talking some shit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so and the big the big shit story of the week is Brittany Griner is coming home. Now, we've been covering this story here on this program, folks, from the from when it very first started and uh, tied it all up in, in this war with between Russia and well, this aggression from Russia towards Ukraine. And in the early stages of that, in February, Brittany gets picked up at a Moscow airport with 0.57 grams of uh, what they claim hashish oil in a, in a vape cartridge. Uh, she has spent since that she's been in a Russian prison since that time, but is as of this morning back on uh, American soil and at home in her wife's arms in Texas. Dr. David, give us a little of your perspective on this. Um, how, how do you feel about all this? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled, uh, you know, that she's that she's home. I'm thrilled that the United States uh, government and President Biden uh, made it a priority to to um, advocate and, and work for uh, her release, as they have uh, have been doing not only for her, but for Paul and for, you know, any uh, and all Americans who are wrongfully detained uh, around the world. We don't know that's that's always happening because it's you know happening behind the scenes um but uh you know it's it's always a, a priority but it's it just feels good to see um you know the fruition of the work that's been happening including my former uh, governor from new mexico bill richardson who's mm -hmm. always been deeply involved in in international affairs and hostage release situations um and so i you know i'm thrilled about it and been posting on social media and but what's been um disappointing to me is to see the the uh, attempt to politicize and and you know uh, to talk about it as, as if there's some negative angle of this story, right? That oh, you know, I, I, I had a had a cousin on my Facebook feed who who said, uh, well, you know, we, we gee, I'm gl glad for her, but but uh, you know, disappointed that you know Paul is not included in the deal, and and uh, it's time to get a new president with you know who has better priorities or different priorities or something like that. You know, and of course, myself and many other people just started kind of tearing into this perspective. And it's like, 
there is no downside to this moment. You know, this this is a win for all American citizens, regardless of how you voted, regardless of how you feel about this president or, you know, any any other issue, uh, regardless of how you feel about, you know, uh, a small amount of hashish oil or or any of those other things. Um, this is not a moment to divide and say, yes, but he's uh, military or yes, but he's been there longer or yes, but da, da, da. no. No, just stop it. Just stop it. <laughs> stop it. I agree. It's, we we have to celebrate when the law works. Right. That it ever doesn't work, but we have to celebrate when we see the wins. We have to celebrate when the things go the way we, we're looking for them to go. And um, yeah, I can't see how you. And I saw that happen too immediately. Right. The yeah, first, immediately. It was. There were even people that their post was. But what about Paul? And for those that maybe don't know, Paul Whelan is an American businessman. He was picked up in uh, 24 years ago in 2018 on uh, and charged with espionage. And uh, and what I've seen and what I've read is they're very different cases with very different people. And from the perspective of the Russian government, very different severities of the accused crime. Right. Brittany actually admitted that they were hers, that yeah. it was a mistake. It wasn't like she was trying to smuggle. And uh, Paul has maintained his innocence all the way along. And But we do, what we do know is the American government hasn't given up on him either. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And very, obviously very different cases. And, and, and when you, you know, take a wider perspective and look at uh, the, you know, the kind of the psychological profile of of Russian identity. Uh, it's a very difficult grip uh, based on the accusation of espionage for them to let go of, you know, for, for us to negotiate and pry the fingers off uh, of Paul. For them, you know, like, like let, let's flip it around. Let's say there's somebody here in American custody who's accused of being a Russian spy. Um, you know, regardless of, of, you know, any of the details of that, uh, if we were to let them go, uh, just as we were talking about, social media would blow up. It's like, what do you mean? You, you let a spy go, you right. know, and it doesn't matter whether, you know, in, in this case for, for Russia, again, talking consciousness and mindset, it, it doesn't matter whether he's innocent or not. They have an identity a psychological profile, a collective consciousness, if you will. And for them to say, we're going to let this person who was spying on us go back to America. It's, it's just, it's not frankly, very conceivable. Now, uh, now I say that I don't, I don't mean that he won't ever come home because, you know, negotiation is a, is a political uh, game and, and I believe we'll find the right chips to play uh, and, and get him home. And I pray for that. Um, but, we just have to remember that you know this, these were not apples to apples in terms of the what what that move would mean to Russian identity when they're in the midst of a of a war, right? Yeah. <laughs> I find it interesting. I have to believe that our Russian counterparts are also looking and obviously looking at the optics of all of this um, because they had an international arms dealer. Right. Um, for us, 
but we see Britney as a, a symbol of the American dream. We see Britney. Britney had immediately was identified as because I believe she's an American and an athlete that this is this is so much more important than anything and that we're even willing to trade an international arms dealer who we had on a 25 year mm-hmm. sentence for selling arms earmarked to kill Americans it's a, right. there's a there we get into these things that as you're saying none of it's apples to apples right um, and let's celebrate that Britney's home because now we can double down our efforts on bringing Paul Whelan home. Absolutely. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and one of the points I made was that in Britney's freedom, you know, again, you, you have an athlete, she, she will continue to have a high profile social media profile and, and persona in, in, uh, in our world. And she will now be, be a lifelong, according to her own words, I'm not you know making this up. She will be a lifelong advocate for the release of Paul, for the release of any, uh, you know, wrongly imprisoned uh, American citizen uh, overseas. She will continue to be a voice and use her platform for those issues. So it's a it's a huge win for everybody involved. And Paul's family acknowledged that, um, you know, Brittany's family acknowledged their willingness and, and advocacy for, uh, for this lifelong. And so to, again, to divide it, you know, we know, we talk about this all the time in terms of politics. We know that we're divided. We know that, you know, there's a consciousness of us and them and all of that stuff that's battling out. This is not one where we need to make a division. It just isn't. And and the people who are attempting to do that, um, I, 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 you know, frankly, I find it immoral. I find it absolutely immoral. And particularly people in political office uh, from Washington who, who are doing this. Uh, this is not a, a moment to stand on and try to bolster uh, your side of, of the political spectrum. Um, you know, this is a moment to stand under the banner of the United States of America and say, thank you, President Biden. That's it. Yep. Amen. I'll do that. Thank you, President Biden. Yeah, uh, It's a good thing. All right, let's switch tactics a little bit. I've got a I've got a very important and pressing question from for you because number one, you're in Georgia. Georgia has definitely been in the spotlight this past week, at least as far as politics. So I gotta ask, do you are are you more of a vampire guy or more of a werewolf guy? <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, you know, um <laughs> I've been told that werewolves are pretty cool. Right, 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 right. Uh, you know, um, but werewolves that are from Texas don't belong in Georgia. Let me just say it that way. Um, <laughs> I, I, I like my uh, elected officials to be able to complete uh, coherent sentences and and have some qualifications for the job. Uh, this was an interesting, not just the last week. I mean, last month, la- frankly, I mean, let's go back, uh, though I do want to say, from November 9th, which was the day after the general election, to December 6th, uh, which was the uh, runoff uh, day of vote. Uh, in that, you know, less than 30 days, 28 days, uh, $81 million between the two campaigns, just in those 28 days, $81 million. And so then add the general to that and then add the fact that Senator Warnock um has uh, now put his name forward for this Senate seat uh, five times. First in the primary, 
uh, and then two years ago, the general, um, and then the runoff for that general. And then because it was a short-term fill-in seat for two years, then again for this general, and then again for the primary. Five times in the last two years that he's filled out a, you know, a things, submit his name and, and put a campaign together uh, to do this. And, and in that time, uh, you know, Trump and, and, and his allies have endorsed uh, uh, people who have failed to capture that uh, Senate seat. And the other one that, that um, uh, John Ossoff uh, occupies. So, you know, they, he endorsed uh, Kelly Loeffner, lost, endorsed, endorsed David Perdue, lost, uh, endorsed uh, uh, Herschel Walker, lost. That's three Senate seats in the last two years uh, that this, um, I don't even want to call it the Republican Party, but this uh, <laughs> aspect of the Republican Party uh, that still has a grip on it, um, you know, this guy is not working for you. If there's any conservatives listening or watching, uh, this guy doesn't have a good picker and uh, it's, it's not working. And, and further, if you, uh, and this is the part I really want to talk about. If you look at the breakdown of, of the voters, and we ought to talk about Kemp and Stacey Abrams as well, because there's so much, uh, you know, uh, to talk about in the Georgia elections in relationship to uh, not just American politics, but uh, America as a as a collective identity and consciousness and where we need to go in terms of justice issues and multicultural uh, understanding and all of that. So there's so, so many layers to, to you know, get into. But when you look at the makeup of the electorate uh, of the people of the people who voted and which is another important distinction right there's over seven million eligible voters in uh, the state of georgia um, collectively in the runoff and and the numbers pretty close in general as well um, about three and a half million people voted so that's half of the number of people eligible. So I think that's really important to frame because we always talk about, well, 50% of the country is, thinks this and 50% you know, thinks that. And no, 50% of the people who are eligible to have a voice chose to make their voice heard. And then 50% of that 50% think this way and then think that way, right? And, and a whole other swath of 50% chose not to engage for whatever reason. And we don't, you know, have that data in front of us. So we tend to think and in in, in, uh, make these assumptions uh, from the electorate that uh, I think it's important, especially when we're talking about this dangerous um, white nationalist, you know, uh, anti-woke, you know, however we want to frame it, this, this uh, MAGA Republican energy as being somehow this big dominant energy in the country. It's 25% of us. It's a, you know, it's a small number. It has had a grip and, and has swayed, you know, it's had a bigger impact. Uh, but when we boil it down, uh, it's, it's not as big as we, we tend to frame it to be. doesn't mean it's not important, but I just want to frame that. So back to look at the electorate, look at, at, at who voted for Walker and for Warnock. Walker only won in two categories, white men, and white women. Every other category he lost in both elections. He lost the black male vote. He lost the black women vote. He lost the male and female Latino vote, uh, Asian and other. And, and so what that tells the Republican Party 
in Georgia and I think for the rest of the nation because we are a canary in the coal mine, if you will. You, you cannot win. You cannot win unless you are building a multicultural uh, a platform and, and you're making uh, a, a, a a pitch for and a platform that includes the issues that are diverse, that that include multicultural experience, you know, diversity, inclusivity. We talk talk about it all the time. Uh, unless your platform looks like a multicultural tapestry that America is, you are not going to win. Yeah. You're just not. And so, that other side is powerful. You know, he pulled in one. Walker pulled in 1.7 million votes. The gap uh, that he won by in this last uh, uh, round, uh, which, by the way, he won both rounds. And, and so let's talk about the fact that the fact that we have a 50 percent uh, threshold uh, runoff rule in Georgia. Let's talk about where that comes from, because it has racist origins. Um, and, and so it's a vestige of, of this, um, you know, terrible consciousness, uh, uh, anti-black consciousness in, in our country. And it's still on the books here in Georgia. So that's fine. Let's play by the rules. We played by the rules. You know, we, we, we've defeated them, you know, twice now. Uh, but the gap is about 95. And I think when all the mail-ins and overseas votes and all that come in, it'll be over a hundred thousand, uh, votes. Um, that 100,000 is almost uh, the exact number matched to his victory in DeKalb County alone, which is about half of Atlanta. Atlanta's DeKalb County uh, and uh, uh, Fulton County. Uh, so just DeKalb County alone, right, which he won by 92%, I think, um, makes the difference of the gap. So again, unless you are building a multicultural platform, uh, if if your everything that you're doing is simply dependent on um, the perspective and the power of patriarchy and whiteness, um, that that's not a winning ticket. Yeah, I I like that how you say that. It's not a winning ticket unless we're building a multicultural platform or coalition. Yeah. And um, yesterday I saw a clip. Um, I I'm forgetting the name now. Um, white woman on the house of the rep on the house floor house of representatives and brought herself to tears at the thought of voting for the marriage equality act that's now moving forward Br brought herself to tears at the thought that two people might love each other enough to make a, a lifelong commitment and just happen to be of the same gender yeah, it, it 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 astounds me how um, this old rooted consciousness, and you you hit it straight. It's white. It's white. It's it's that that white player, that white superiority that says we create the rules and we're creating the rules that work for us. In this yeah. case, I think eighty one million dollars is an obscene amount of money that. I'm sure there is plenty of good nonprofits and organizations in the Atlanta, all across Georgia. All across Georgia. A whole hell of a lot better with that kind of money. Medicaid, Medicaid you know, healthcare, uh, uh, you know, so many things that were that, you know, money and resource uh, could be used. Yeah, I, you know, I think when we talk about the 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 the, the power grip that is, um, you know still lording over us but but slowly 
dying and and drifting away, although it's making a lot of rattling noises as it goes, is a combination of two things. It it is whiteness. Uh, it is which, by the way, is not skin tone. You know, you don't you don't have to you don't have to look like me to believe in whiteness. Which and and, and, and I don't believe in whiteness, right? As uh, it's not something I buy into, uh, and but which takes a conscious effort to divorce yourself from. Because if you if you look like me, uh, then you, you're ingrained in it automatically, and so it takes a conscious awake effort to divorce yourself of those ideas and assumptions and behaviors and, and beliefs. Um, but there are people of color who ascribe to you know the the powers and the privileges of whiteness, and there are examples of that in political office. They tried to make Walker one of those, um, but um, you know. <laughs> there are other good examples, you know, there, uh, one of them sits on the Supreme court, um, and, um, Candace Owens, uh, and, and others, uh, the Senator from, I think Alabama, um, um, Scott, last name, Scott, Chris Scott, I think is his name, African-American conservative, you know, so, you know, there, there are others, um, but it's it's whiteness and it's patriarchy. It's maleness, right? It's um, well, not maleness. Let's say patriarchy, because uh, again, you don't have to be genetically male uh, or identify as a male to to believe in and to uh, lend your consciousness to the ideals of patriarchy. Plenty of white women do that. The, the white women supporters of Trump, that's what they're doing. They believe in patriarchy. So it is the consciousness of patriarchy and whiteness and where that Venn diagram comes together. That has been the, the grip on this country of power and privilege from its founding. Uh, but again, you look at the electorate, look at what's happening in the metro areas and, and uh, you know, all across California and the East Coast, Oregon, Washington, et cetera, um, and frankly, every major metro area, uh, whiteness alone is not enough to get you uh, to victory. You might win a primary, but you're not going to, and they know that, they see that, they see the trends. You know, there are people who study this and spend a lot more time on this than I do, or you do, um, and they see the trends, they see where it's going, and uh, that's what they're really upset about. And I think we as ministers and as a, a awakened spiritual movement, we have to talk about it and we have to talk about it more. You know, we, we, we have this identity crisis within our own, you know, and we're just talking shit here. So let's let's really get into it. Uh, you know, we like to be nice. We love to be nice. We love to make nice with everybody. We love to say we don't we don't talk about politics here. We don't we don't go there. We don't. Uh, but but then, you know, we do support marriage equality and, and we do, you know, there are some things that have broad acceptance in our movement. And, and so we have this, you know, uh, kind of bipolar thing. It's like, well, are you are you in or are you not? You know, like we're in when it's popular and it doesn't look like it'll ruffle too many feathers. Right. Uh, but if it's going to be a little dicey and, and whatever, then, oh, no, we got to we got to stay neutral. You know, and I was in a dialogue with with some of my colleagues on on our listserv recently. I won't name names, but because uh, it's not relevant. Um, but you know, somebody said, "Well, yeah, I don't. You know, I don't speak politics. I don't take positions. I don't very careful." And I've told my community, and there were several people who had this perspective. I I've told I've stood in front of my community and said, "I don't do this," and um, and one of them, you know, it was the way that they phrased it, and and what I heard as a 
father of black children, as a man in an interracial marriage, um, you know what, and as a member, as a minister who has trans folks and and um, um, you know uh, Latins and African Americans and and a whole spectrum of diversity within our community. What I heard when I read that comment was, you know, I don't go here, I don't speak, I don't take sides. What I heard was, you won't stand up for me. Right. Right. You won't stand up for me. Yep. Now, now I know this particular person and I know that they love me and I know that they would stand up for me. I happen to know that because I have a relationship with this person, right? But if you're saying that from your pulpit and and somebody of color is visiting you for the first time, or a trans person or LGBT folk or somebody who has one of those individuals in their family uh, and, and, and you make that statement and you think you're appealing and, and everybody's gonna applaud for you and, and, and maybe that's the case. Maybe that's what your collective community wants you to say. But what you have said to the diverse person, whatever form that, that that may take, that's either watching you online or trying you out for the first time, is you have silently told them I will not stand for you because it's too risky and it might offend my top contributors. And I think that I'm just going to call it out what it is. I think that is dangerous. <laughs> I think it's hypocritical. Uh, I, I, I think it's pathetic. Um, I, I think it's wrong. I think it's immoral uh, to, to do that. Uh, now, I, I can't dictate what other ministers do in, in their in their pulpits in our movement. Everybody's got to make your own choices. And I get that it's hard. I get that, you know, we have churches that are in very purple states and, and maybe have congregations that are split right down the middle in terms of uh, political identity. But this is not about politics. It's about human dignity and social justice and speaking for justice issues isn't about political affiliation. I don't care if my what I say on Sunday offends your political disposition. I don't care because if it does, then take it up with your political disposition, not with me, right. because I'm going to speak for justice issues and and those might fall on the left side of the aisle or the right side of the aisle uh, today and 10 years from now might flip, you know, or 50 years ago might have been on different. So, so I'm not concerned about what side of the political spectrum uh, what I'm speaking about and how I'm applying our principles to real issues of the day. I'm not concerned about what side of the aisle they fall on because that could change over time. Right. I'm only concerned that it's a, it's a matter of human dignity. Yeah. And, and I think we need more of that prophetic courage coming from our pulpits because I think to not do so, you know, again, is dangerous and offensive to the diverse community that we say we want to be in creating a world that works for all. Wow. All right, folks. Um, if you're sitting where I am, you're going to rewind that last few minutes and hit that part again. So uh, when this goes into the archives, make sure you check that part out again. Share it with your family and friends, because this is important. And it, you hit on something in there. You hit on a lot of things in there that we could chat about. Um, a couple that really come up to me for me, and that is that and I've said it too, I agree with you. I think we try to it be so inclusive of absolutely everybody. And that's not a bad thing, but we do it in a way that does tell others, yeah, well, you're welcome here. You can be included here, but don't expect me to go to bat for you. Yeah. yeah. Because, and, and in many ways, I think it really does come back to that place because we're afraid to offend 
somebody somebody's were afraid somebody's going to take their money and go away. That's the bottom line. It's and, the codependent relationship that ministers are in. It's it's a terrible, <laughs> thing. It's a terrible thing, right? Uh, and 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 those concerns are real. I'm not trying to dismiss it. I've got a family. I've got a house. I've got a mortgage. I've got you know yep. a kid going to get, you know go to college and another one starting first grade. So I I not only need to do this and be successful at it. I need to do it for the next 20, 30 years. Uh, so so I get it. Um, but I'm, I'm I'm not willing to compromise on on principles of human dignity, and I think that our teaching has something to say about that uh, in a very powerful and real and impactful way that will help that will help uh, the division that we feel that will help the tension and and the fear that uh, people have. Um, and, but we've got to be courageous in speaking it, and it might mean that some people have to to step out for a minute because it's not the new thought that they're used to. I'm okay with that. I really am. Cool. All right. So before we run out of time and we often go a little long on this program anyway, so uh, we're running out of time already. Uh, just about. Yeah. We're just getting warmed up. <laughs> um, you, you threw a, a term in there and I want to, and I want to highlight it because I think you're already speaking to the future of new thought here you use the term prophetic courage yeah, and it leads us to that idea of prophetic new thought. And this is a fairly, I've only seen a few places where this term has been used in writing and in, in, people are just now trying to really, I think, uh, grasp what this means. Um, help us understand that a little bit more. What is, what is this emerging concept we're calling prophetic new thought from your perspective? Yeah, to me, it's, you know, from the beginning of my ministry in, in, in the pulpit, which is, you know, 17, going on 18 years now, um, I've always talked about the radical implication of our teaching, right? What's the radical implication? Let's, let's take the principle of oneness. We believe in oneness. Okay, there's no argument there across the board. What's the radical implication of that? You know, we believe in prosperity. What's the radical implication of that? We believe in wholeness. What's the radical implication of that on the collective uh, level? So, uh, you know, the 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 voice of the prophetic in in the Hebrew tradition uh, is to to be the voice that stands in the gap, and the gap is between. Uh, God's vision for the world, however you want to, you know, phrase and articulate that, um, and and the lived experience in the right now, and that between those two places, so the right now reality and God's vision for what's possible or what God desires, depending on what tradition you're speaking from, Jewish, Christian, whatever, that you know is articulated slightly differently, but between those two things, there's a gap, and. And, and that's the first place that we had to start in understanding that in new thought is because we like to just be in the vision and be in the possible and think affirmatively and state it in the now. And, it, and so it is. And it's all done. And that's wonderful. That's one of our tools. That's one of our practices. I'm you know not abandoning that at all. Uh, but there's a gap between that and, and today's felt reality. And so for new thought, the first thing we have to do is wrestle with that. There is a gap. Currently, the world does not work for everyone. Right. And I know ministers who say, but the world does work for everyone according to their consciousness. That is bullshit. That is complete crap. That is a, that is, that is a, that is a, um, uh, 
a stinking pile of theological privilege is what that is. Mm. And so, <laughs> you know, we right first have to wrestle with the gap. There's a gap. And when we rest, and then we see that the voice of the prophetic stands in that gap. And what it does is two things. It calls uh, to account the people in current reality, whoever are, are the, the powers and principalities, it calls them to account. And it says, you all are responsible for creating this vision. Step up, you know, enact more justice, help the poor, help the, you know, step up enact laws and, and, and create space in which God's justice is felt more equitably across the board. That's the voice of the prophetic. And it, it doesn't pick sides. It's not about liberal or conservative. It just, it's the voice that does that. And whoever needs to hear that is who needs to hear that. And by far, you know, throughout my life, you know, Democrats have come up short plenty of times plenty of times in, in lots of ways. Um, and so, you know, we tend to think, oh, liberal conservative, forget that, just forget that. What is the voice of the prophetic that needs to say, step up and create more equity? You're the ones in charge of that. And then it continues, so it does that, and then it continues to call the, the vision forward. It continues to say, this is possible. A world of justice is possible. A world of peace is possible. A world of health and wholeness is possible. So it's doing those two things, and we do that part really well. We right. don't do the calling people up you know, well at the community level. And we do that because we're wrapped into an individualistic consciousness that says me and mine, uh, which I, you know, I think is, is an aversion, is, is a violation of the principle of oneness. It can't just be about you and your consciousness if we truly believe in oneness because oneness connects us with everything. Uh, so that's that. I, you know, when I was at the INTA uh, conference in Chicago, I did a whole thing on New Thought as a Liberation Theology. You have access to that video, so maybe you can tell people, point people where to get it. Um, but I kind of break it down uh, into the, the uh, salient points of what liberation theology is and how New Thought uh, really can begin to see itself in that light and act in that way. And I think that's what we have to do. And I think it begins with, you know, uh, I, th I think I mentioned this on, as a guest, uh, as, a, as a commenter on one of your shows uh, with Tracy Brown. We got to start reading in ministerial school. We got to start reading James Cone. Um, you know, we got to start reading Cornell West. Uh, we got to read more of Dr. King and, and Malcolm X. We got to, you know, got to read some of these liberation theology texts um, and learn how to apply them. We got to read James Baldwin. Uh, you know, we, we need to change from just reading, uh, you know, all of these dead white men uh, who, who synthesized uh, a multinational, multicultural, uh, uh, you know, blend of, of spiritual wisdom from India and from native traditions and from Africa. And, and, and we call them, we only acknowledge the, the white male voices of new thought. They got it from a very diverse, you know, atmosphere even if they pulled it down in their consciousness what they were pulling down was ancient and, and came from across the world so we need to expand our reading list uh, and really understand how our principles can apply through through that consciousness yeah amen i was reflecting on exactly this recently that um i love the education i received my ministerial education yeah. it was rich and it felt diverse at the time and and it prepared me incredibly well for a reality that no longer exists mm. Mm. For, for it prepared me to be a white male dominant a 
patriarchal pulpit minister. Um, and it did that incredibly well, but that reality just isn't available anymore. It, right. we, we, we've gone beyond that yep. and we're now stepping into this, these newer ideas. I want to give a quick shout out to our brother, Raymond Anderson, Ray, Raymond, we've got a few comments here, but they're all blank. Unfortunately, I'm not sure what's happening. Um, either that or you've fallen asleep on your, your, uh, your, your entry, enter. <laughs> it would be the first time I put someone to sleep. <laughs> but I know that Raymond, uh, we want to have Raymond back on this program again soon because there he is. Okay, you're here. Uh, good. Uh, because I think he, he also shares a lot with us on that. Uh, our good friend Lori Carlson is also saying thank you. Uh, it's an important and relevant discussion this morning. I love expanding our reading list and recognizing the true ancestry of our teaching exactly um we can talk it all we want but unless we walk the walk but talk is just talk mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know and i say start with the reading list because it will shift the consciousness and how you see how the teaching can be applied when you read james cone uh you know he's a christian and he's responding to uh the malcolm x's who are who and the and the uh, black you know, power movement that are saying Christianity is irrelevant to the black community because it doesn't it doesn't help us at all. It doesn't empower us. It doesn't serve us. And he is a Christian theologian is responding to that saying, well, but maybe it does if we if we view it from this angle. And, and so I think we need to have that same kind of critical thinking about our teaching, you know, uh, and, and those texts will help you. And you, you begin to see the path and say, oh, yeah, we really do belong in the radical justice applying atmosphere. It doesn't leave out the personal work. It doesn't leave out the, the personal consciousness. All of our tools are still included, but it adds this element that frankly has always been there. Right? The other thing, when we, we do that, we will we'll discover and acknowledge that the early authors, the Emersons and, and whatnot were, were social justice radicalists you know they believed in 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 an equity applied across the board and in, in the social sector they weren't just all about gazing at their navels they did a lot of that too they were men of privilege for sure um but but they understood how what they were pulling down and what they were discussing could be applied at the collective level Wow. Folks, if you wonder what you stumbled into, this is Ministers Talking Shit, and it happens every Friday morning at 7 a.m. My guest today has been Reverend Dr. David Alexander. We're going to take a, just a 30-second break to say thank you to our sponsors and contributing and contributing members. Uh, give Dr. David a chance to take a sip of water, and we're going to come right back with our final thoughts for Who today's program. <laughs> no water, coffee. Okay. Stay with us. We'll be right back. More coming in just a minute. On behalf of everyone at New Thought Media Network, thank you for being a member of our virtual family. Your financial contributions help share the New Thought message with people from around the world. Please visit and contribute at www.ntmedia.org forward slash donate new thought media network come be you and please like share and subscribe until next time peace and blessings all right 
it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being with us today, folks. Um, I would say, Dr. David, that uh, you made a splash on that last one, especially with uh, with Reverend Raymond. We've got a uh, on target, yeah, black power on target, <laughs> boom, hundred percent. I love it, and a uh, and a smile for your coffee cup. <laughs> oh, there you go. Okay, Linda, thanks for being with us here today, brother Wayne. Glad you're with us as well, Fiona. Thank you for watching all the way on the other side of the planet. Wonderful. Folks, we do this every Friday morning. We'll be back again next week with more of Ministers Talking Shit. Dr. David, I hope you'll come back and join us again sometime, and we'll make sure Rev Z's not traveling the next time. Oh, awesome. I would love it anytime. Love to be here. Love you guys. Right on. Folks, thanks for being with us. Stay tuned to New Thought Media Network. Up next is Be Your Own Hero with Sekou Writes. Morning prayers start at 8.15. The morning sip with Rev Melissa is at 8.30. 40 Days of Love with Emma Moreno at 9 o'clock. Remember, that's a dual language program, half in Spanish, half in English. Uh, our regular programming throughout the day, Lindsay Leinbach is with us. Uh, the Joy Show with Rev B is at 1 o'clock. I'll be back with the good news at 5 and Pastor Michael with the Fireside Chat at 6. Until we see you again, wish you peace and richest blessings. Bye now. And thanks for listening to this week's episode of Ministers Talking We'll be back again next week with more commentary on current affairs, world events, and any other our ministers want to talk about. And if you found value here, please share our with your friends. Until next time, peace and blessings. <laughs>